and welcome everyone to the Sports Map Podcast. My name is Nick Kane. This is the podcast where we're talking all things sports medicine, physiotherapy, rehabilitation, and return to performance. And today's episode, we're chatting with Kim Keedle, who is an Australian physiotherapist and a performance coach uh, within Formula One Racing. He's previously worked for Team Huss and was the physiotherapist for many years for driver Roman Grosjean. And he's now working with a very uh, prominent up-and-coming Australian driver who he talks to throughout this podcast. We're also going to touch a fair bit on the physical demands of driving and a lot of what the program looks like on a week-to-week basis, including delving a little bit deeper into neck strengthening. We're still on a high here at Sportsmap after our recent football injury conference, which was held in Melbourne a couple of weeks ago. We had over 16 presenters over two days and um, the feedback was excellent. Uh, the presenter content was, was first class and it was brilliant just to be back having some face-to-face education. We still have two brilliant courses coming up in 2022 in our groin symposium in Sydney and our upper limb rehabilitation on the Gold Coast. They're both into October and early November. So head on to the website to have a look at all those details. That was postponed from early in the year. So there are very limited spots for both of those events still remaining. Keep a lookout for our brand new web platform that'll be launching very soon and our new masterclass program that to give you a little bit of an idea on what's going to be happening is we're going to take you inside the rooms where our experts will be taking you through exactly what they do uh, and some in-depth chats around different pathologies and cases with some of Australia's best practitioners and moving forward the world's best practitioners so over 18 hours of practical based content and ready for easy access from your home so we look forward to sharing that a little bit more with you in the coming months. Okay, let's jump over to our chat with Kim. All right, Kim, welcome to the Sportsman Podcast. Thank you for having me, mate. It's good to be here. Mate, we really appreciate your time coming in and, and having a chat. Now, fill the listeners in a little bit about what your current role is. Yeah, so I'm a sports physio uh, from Melbourne, graduated from the University of Melbourne. Uh, I'm currently sort of working and living in the UK. Um, I work in motorsport, so um, particularly in Formula One. Uh, My current role is I'm working sort of as a performance manager for a driver called Oscar Piastri, who's a young Australian driver, um, currently in the process of graduating to F1 next year. Fill us in a little bit on like Oscar at the moment. What's he, uh, who's he driving for and you know, where are you looking on taking that in the coming years? Yeah, so Oscar won Formula 2 last year, which is sort of the feeder series, the VFL to the AFL, um, for example. So uh, he's currently the reserve driver for Alpine F1 team. Um, so he's travelling to all the races with them. He'll fill in if any of their drivers are sick. Um, and then hopefully next year he'll progress to a full-time contract and, and be racing on the circuit full-time. Perfect. And in the last few years, you featured a little bit on the Netflix F1 documentary series and you're working for Team Haas with uh, Roman Grosjean. Uh, how was that and what was your role there? Yeah, well, firstly, I don't think anyone wants to see this face on, on their Netflix, but, um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, no, mate, yeah, yeah. So I sort of um, started working with Haas probably five years ago. Um, they were looking for a physio uh, sort of to come in and set up a performance program for them. So that, that's what I did. I went in and 
set up a performance program and help them with a few little things that they wanted to achieve. And then um, through that, I developed a relationship with one of their drivers, Roman Grosjean, and he sort of asked me to come and work with him individually and on a full-time basis. So then I sort of transitioned into working with, with drivers. Uh, and we'll chat a little bit more about your work there with Roman and also around uh, maybe his recovery around from a, a really dramatic crash that featured in the last couple of years. Um, but before we get to that, we wanted to just sort of chat a little bit around the physical requirements, I guess, that are required to perform at F1 and and, and what that looks like on a week-to-week basis. And yeah, fill us in on your thoughts around that. Yeah, so F1 drivers need to be pretty fit. They need to be able to withstand uh, large forces that go through their body, large G-forces that go through their body when they drive the car. And they need to have a, a pretty reasonable baseline of aerobic fitness to be able to deal with the stresses and the demands of a season. So um, that's what we sort of focus on physically. Um, it's a unique sport in regards, uh, in terms that the equipment, so that the car they drive is often the performance limiter and not necessarily their physical capacity, um, which might be different to sort of field-based sports or team sports. So that's probably one of the unique things about the sport. Uh, you mentioned the G-forces and ways to, I guess, withstand that load and I imagine that's got a degree of neck strengthening work. Is that a big component of um, what you might do? And if so, what's it sort of look like on a week-to-week basis? Yeah, definitely. So neck strengthening is something that we focus on quite heavily and we, we normally do that with, with a neck harness. We use a, a neck harness by a company called Gatherer Systems, which is pretty um, well, a very good piece of kit, to be honest. Uh, and so... We'll normally be doing in the pre-season, which is sort of January to February, four, four next sessions a week, um, ranging from sort of strength endurance to top-end strength work. Uh, and then in season, um, they get a lot of um, stimulus for the next strength from driving the car. So we might uh, just bring that down to one to two sessions a week, depending on how busy the schedule is, how often they're racing. What sort of, I mean, as a physio, I'd look at, you know, you get someone coming in post a, a whiplash or a upper cervical headache and they're doing some deep neck flexor training. Uh, I've seen it with the pressure cuffs and what have you. I imagine it's probably a little bit more advanced than that. Yeah, it is. And uh, I think we were speaking about this previously. Often in uni, well, the way that I felt in uni is when I left uni, I, I looked at the cervical spine as this really um, fragile area. And it wasn't until I started working in motorsport that I realised that, you know, when done safely, we can load the cervical spine quite heavily and it'll have really good strength adaptations. Um, so, yeah, so we, we uh, you know, we might load Oscar with 17 and a half to 20 kilos and then do 10 second isometric holds or 20 second isometric holds um, on, a, on a cable machine, um, which you and me would probably struggle with. That would be quite heavy for us. Um, but because in motorsport there's this um, sort of, um, inherent belief and this cultural understanding that neck strengthening is so important to their sport. You know, once you once you get through your teenage years and you start reaching 20, that's a force that these guys can cope with pretty easily. So, um, yeah, it's probably a little bit different to being in clinic and working with a, a pressure cuff and do, sort of doing some of that um, low-level but very important um, um, deep, deep neck, neck flexor work. How are you guys, I guess, prescribing that load are you doing some criteria where you're looking at some some of the benchmarks or uh, their max contraction and working back from that and how are you doing that yeah yeah so we uh do some testing every year um basically to find out their their max voluntary contraction last year we used or we we connected with a physio out of the uk called leslie mcbride who's done a bunch of research um 
in rugby union over there, um, implementing uh, the force frame by valve performance and doing isometric neck strength testing on that. Um, so looking at extension, flexion, and both lateral flexions. Uh, so yeah, we did some testing with her last year, which was really beneficial. Um, and we got some good numbers out of that, some good insight in, as to where Oscar was and some areas for improvement. Uh, once we get back to the UK at the end of April, we'll do a, a reassessment. So we've now implemented um, some neck strengthening protocols. We'll do a reassessment at, at the end of April and see where he is and then you know, plan from there. And you mentioned a little bit around uh, sometimes the holds up to 24 kilos and 10, 20 second holds. Are you, is that the extent of your time under tension? Do you go longer than that? And do you do some work, I guess, through range with that? And how do you break that up across the weekend? Yeah, so um, if we're doing four sessions a week, for example, normally we'll just do two sort of strength endurance sessions where we're looking at long holds. So maybe up to a minute holds um, with maybe 50 to 60% of max voluntary contraction, so lighter loads. Uh, and then we'll do normally two sort of high strength sessions or high end strength sessions, sessions I should say, where you know we're, do, we're either doing shorter holds, so maybe five to ten seconds with higher loads, um, or we might do high loads and then work through range. Um, so maybe we'll split it up one session each. And, and normally when we're working through range, we'll do rotation as well as extension and lateral flexions. And what about the, I guess, the accessory muscles around the neck? I'm sure they get in the gym a little bit, but we're talking, I guess, upper trap, rotator cuff, scapular work. Is, is that a bit of a feature? Exactly right. Yes, we target the neck with specific, very specific exercises and isometric holds, but we work the upper shoulder girdle and neck very regularly. Uh, when Oscar's not in the car, we'll be in the gym four days a week doing weights training, uh, targeting those areas, but also incorporating you know, full body full body exercises as well. So not forgetting about the legs, not forgetting about trunk hips as well. And when you say not in the car, so for the most part, if, if Oscar is driving full-time in F1, there's not a whole lot of scope and time for this extra training. You mentioned the next stuff's maybe once a week. I imagine the gym works probably not too much. I believe they're probably traveling a lot in between. In the window there for opportunity in your work, you said it's only really January, Feb. It's a really short sort of off-season preparation time. How do you squeeze it all in? It's a really good question, mate, and it's a challenge. F1 season is 23 races, so think of that as 23 weeks effectively. Then you have an extra two weeks of testing, so that becomes 25 weeks. So all of a sudden for half of the year you're, you're travelling or you're on the road um, in, and out, in and out of hotels in def- different parts of the world. So it is a challenge. So we really try to bank those two months at the start of the year to get as much work in as we can, and then it's effectively um, management throughout the rest of the year. I don't know if you've travelled around Europe much, but European hotels are <laughs> never that flash, I would say, and normally their gym facilities are pretty poor. So, you know, then it's about taking TRXs on the road, getting bodyweight exercises in when we can, and then, you know, just finding times through the season where we might have a two-week gap where we can get a little bit of an overload session through or get some high load through um, at sort of those pivotal times through the season. Yeah, it is a little bit unique with Oscar this year. Um, as the reserve driver, he's, he's not racing every week. Um, which gives us a little bit more scope to explore possibilities. But again, he's still travelling full-time, so we still have some of those same difficulties. What's your thoughts and views on training for around the visual acuity and perception? Is that a really feature in what you guys do, or do you think, do they just get that from driving? Yeah, we have used that previously. I used to use that with um, with Roman. Uh, he had a, a visual sort of a neuro guy out of Switzerland that he trained with. 
Uh, and he had massive improvements in his visual acuity and uh, particularly around his peripheral vision. We don't, I don't currently use it with Oscar. We haven't found any real need to use it with Oscar. I think it's um, just sort of driver dependent. If they like it and if they feel that they get a performance benefit out of it, great, go ahead and do it. I don't think it's necessarily imperative to the sport. Um, I think there's, there's other key KPIs that should be ticked off first before you start going and looking for those extra things. However, if someone wants to do it, each to their own. Now, I know it's not entirely within, I guess, your scope of work regularly, um, concussion that is, but I believe you sort of are advising a little bit around in the Premier League with some concussion management. Is there a link between the neck strengthening and concussion um, from your literature that's out there at the moment or are we still sort of finding our way in that? Yeah, I think still finding our way a little bit. There's, you know, some pretty strong beliefs that there is a link between uh, neck strength training and reducing concussion. It's not necessarily concrete within the literature yet. Um, however, I think the rationale is, is pretty sound. If you increase your neck strength, you can hopefully um, decrease the accelerating acceleration forces that go through the neck when you have an impact, for example. I was involved in some roundtable discussions with the Premier League last year. They're currently rolling out guidelines for all of their, all of their soccer players um, throughout the UK um, and implementing uh, sort of low-level neck strength um, protocols um, to reduce the uh, to reduce the incidence of concussion and sort of brain trauma injuries from from heading the ball. So, yeah. So as it stands, the the evidence linking the two is is um, still needs further investigation. However, there's a lot of research going on at the moment. So I think in the next couple of years we should start to see some more exciting things coming out in that area. Uh, we touched a little bit on your the week-to-week training and cardiovascular fitness was mentioned. We spoke about it sort of off-air earlier that in the past, I guess, you know, there was this sort of, uh, always hear about F1 drivers, they have to be almost like the fittest in the world. On the doco series, you see them just do some battle ropes or a couple of med ball twists and not much else. Are they training really hard? Are they super fit? Uh, and what's that look like? It varies, driver to driver. You are correct. Historically, when I came into the sport, I thought they had to be aerobic beasts, you know, because like, Jensen Button and Mark Webber and these people were doing Ironmans and triathletes. And, and um, previously you had to meet a, no, previously the lighter you were as a driver, similar to a jockey, the more advantage there was. Um, if, you, if you save weight, you also save time. So you go faster effectively. The, the reality is, is, um, is no, you don't need to be able to ride a marathon. You don't need to be able to do a triathlon. Um, F1 drivers aerobically are much weaker than your boys um, out here at Essendon. Um, however, they still do need to have a, a reasonable um, aerobic baseline. Aerobic exercise is not Oscar's favourite uh, mode of exercise at the moment, so we're, we're still working on that. But, um, but yeah, it's a target of ours to, to get him to a certain level so that he can then cope with the demands of an F1 season. Yeah. Uh, I, sorry, I'll just add one more thing. I just thought of it. I, I guess the rationale for, for having to be aerobically fit was that races are often for two hours, um, and it's normally in a pretty warm environment. So we basically, everywhere we travel, is, it's always summer when we go there. Drivers that are, uh, are in a um, fully fireproof suit, which it gets quite warm. They're surrounded by an engine, which is emitting heat. So the cockpit where they sit is normally pretty hot. So you're doing exercise or you're doing a sporting event for two hours in a hot environment. Therefore, you need to be aerobically fit. Realistically, their heart rate is submaximal during the two hours. You're not really getting to max heart rate at any stage throughout that. So, yes, you need to have a certain level of cardiovascular fitness. 
you don't need to be at the top end. How are they preparing for that two hours of heat and no doubt more accommodating for around their hydration levels? Um, is that a real factor leading into races and can they absorb fluids while they're driving? Yep, absolutely. So within the car, they have um, a drinks kit and then they have a, a, basically a straw going into their mouth. So yes, they can. Uh, normally, they'll have somewhere between 600 mils to one litre of fluid in the car. Um, it's often warm because it's sat pretty close to an engine, so it's not the ideal. So we normally hydrate pre-event and we've got a strategy for that. Um, in terms of some of the heat stuff, if we know we're going to a hot race, we'll do um, heat acclimatization training um, prior to us arriving just to make sure that they're you know, ready and adapted to that, um, that stress. What does that look like just by getting training in a hot environment? Correct. Yeah, correct. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly right. We have access to a heat chamber in the UK, which we occasionally use. Yeah. Um, otherwise, it's just uh, get a heater, put it in a room, yeah. get, a, get a, a barometer, get some humidity into the room and then cycle on a bike, for example. Yeah. yeah. So okay. nothing too groundbreaking. A little bit around the nutrition, which I was going to talk about later, but you did mention it there. Driver weight and is it a really important part to maintain weight? I know you look at them, there's no real big muscly sort of guys that are in the cars. How's that work from, you know, the driver regulations and things like that and, and how do you keep the weight at a nice level? Yeah, so a few years ago there was uh, some rule changes by the governing body or, or Formula One. Uh, so there's now a minimum driver weight. So drivers need to be 80 kilos. If they're not 80 kilos, so if my driver weighs 78 kilos, then they have to put two kilos of ballast or effectively weight in the car to standardise it across the um, across the competition, which was brought in to help taller drivers effectively. Um, so in that regards, most drivers are historically you know, just quite short. That's just their body shape type, which actually the 80 kilo limit has given us more scope to put on more muscle, which has been great. Uh, make them more robust, make them be able to deal with the stresses, um, help them if there's a crash in terms of being able to absorb forces, etc. Um, in terms of nutrition, um, yeah, we work with a nutritionist in the UK. Uh, we've got a pretty, a pretty solid um, uh, program for the weekend in terms of when we're, when we're getting in certain macros um, over the course of a weekend. It is very carbohydrate focused um, at the moment, which is fine. Uh, I know people will have different beliefs, but that seems to, seems to sit quite well. Uh, I think the reasoning is sound. Um, and yes, yeah, so we follow that over the course of weekend. Uh, just going on your question about is keeping weight um, sort of consistent important? It's only important in, in regards to the engineers like to know where their weight is coming from and then they can sort of balance the car accordingly. I don't know if that really makes sense, but... Uh, so if they have a driver who's fluctuating, let's say 76 and then 74 and then 78, that makes it a little bit, makes the engineers a little bit more uncertain. So yeah, we try to keep Oscar around, you know, 74 or 75 throughout the year, just so that it's, you know, consistent throughout the year. Okay. And if, if there are guys who are heavier, once they're above 80, is that an issue? And they're trying to say, hey, lose some weight, yeah. get back down to 80. Spot on. Yeah. So as as the car is heavier, you start losing time per lap effectively. So I think it's uh, every kilo is three one-hundredths of a second, which doesn't sound like much to you and me, except when there's only one-tenth or two-tenths of a second um, separating first and 20th, well, every sort of millisecond matters. So, yeah, if you're over 80 kilos, I suspect you'd be getting a tap on the shoulder and saying you need to lose a bit of weight here to help performance. 
I know we sort of mentioned if we're talking injuries in F1, well, let, let's talk through that because I know it's not overly extensive, but we'll cover off on that initially. Like what are some stuff you're seeing in the drivers um, from an injury perspective or, you know, I guess, niggles and things like that that you need to deal with throughout the year? Yeah, so most common injuries that we see, uh, most drivers will have some form of ongoing low back pain. They sit very low to the ground uh, and as their car goes over the ground, they get a lot of vibrations coming up through their spine effectively. So often they'll have, you know, some extent of low back um, degeneration, uh, which we manage, which is more chronic, more grumbly in the background. Often neck pain, uh, occasionally shoulder pain, hand pain, you know, if you're in, involved in a crash. Sometimes um, drivers need to brake very hard with their left foot. It's quite a lot of force to go through their left foot. So I have seen in the past drivers who have had some sort of left Achilles issues um, or a, a grumbly patella tendon. Um, it's probably less frequent, but it can exist. Um, but day to day, yeah, back pain, neck pain. From your history, I guess, well, there we might talk a little bit around the, you know, from a crash and what might happen because we see it like pretty regularly within a crash. And obviously, Roman, who you mentioned earlier that you're working with, had a significant crash. Fill us in also, I guess, on on that incident and how you maybe um, came out of that, both mentally and physically, um, but also, you know, from a general point of view, like what's the process after a crash and how do we address those more acute episodes? Yeah, yeah. So I guess for um, those listeners that don't know, uh, at the end of 2020, um, the driver I was working with, Roman Grosjean, had a, a pretty big crash um, in Bahrain where he went through a barrier, went through a fence effectively. Um, at the start of a race, uh, he had 110 kilos of fuel in his car, which, which caught fire. The, the fuel tank basically exploded and he was trapped in a massive fireball. So um, he got caught in the car for 30 seconds. There was 63 Gs of force, uh, instantaneous force of the crash, which is effectively 63 times your body weight, you know, getting smacked in the head. Um, amazingly, he didn't lose consciousness. Otherwise, he probably wouldn't have got out of the car. So, um, yeah, for those people that have watched Drive to Survive or might be F1 fans, there's some pretty, I guess, sort of humbling footage and, and photos from that crash. And it was, a, it was a pretty crazy time, really, to be involved in. Um, but again, like, I guess a good learning experience um, having to deal with something that significant. So, um, effectively, Roman had third-degree burners of his hands, which was very lucky. He didn't have burns anywhere else. Yeah, he got fuel on his on his gloves, so his gloves burnt through, and it was sort of just a freak accident. Uh, he fractured his tibial plateau and also had a small fracture in his foot, uh, and otherwise that was it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So he was very, very lucky. Uh, very lucky. He was in hospital for a week. Uh, he's since had to have skin grafts on his hands. Um, just to deal with some of the scarring and adhesions that occurred after that. He's done some pretty extensive hand rehab with a specialist in the UK. But, I mean, uh, look, considering how big the crash was, he's, he's lucky to be alive, really. So, you know, they're quite minor injuries. Um, in terms of what it was like for me, yeah, it was, it was a busy week after that, dealing with, you know, he had a wife and three kids back home watching the race live on TV. So dealing with sort of that family side and the emotional side of things managing things logistically with the team uh, about how he was recovering and getting them transported back to Switzerland, all those sorts of things. So, yeah, some skills that are probably outside the scope of, a phy- like, you know, a, a physio strictly, but, um, you know, good skills to sort of learn, I guess. Yeah, for those, I'd recommend those to just have a look at it that you haven't. It was terrible, like, crash, where, you know, it's amazing that he did come out of that. 
What are the mental sort of scars, I guess, like for a lot of the drivers? So this being a really significant crash is like one thing I might get you to talk to. But what about just the other ones that are sort of um, maybe not as extensive, but how the athletes sort of work their way through bouncing back from that or is that just sort of part and parcel and they just roll on? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know, to be honest. I don't really know. Like, you know, um, I guess these – I guess we have to remember is these – these athletes, these drivers have done this as their sport growing up from, you know, you know, either being kids or early teens. So they get used to crashing. It's part of their sport. I guess, you know, it's, it's no different to copping a knock in, in footy. That's just part of your sport and, and you just accept that. Um, but I guess there are some, some crashes that probably rattle them um, more than others. And, yeah, you have to be able to overcome that. So Roman was working with sports psychologists I know after his crash in particular, he had a, a fair few demons going on. You know, uh, he would have flashbacks of him being in the car and it was burning. So he had to deal with those things. You know, that's a real experience that he was experiencing. He did a lot of work with psychology to, to sort of help him cope with that and not, not mourn, mourn over it, but, you know, help him accept that that happened and that's part of his story now and to move on from that. So um, he's now sort of living in America and driving in a category in America um, he's very successful. He's very happy, and uh, you know he's, he's recovered really well from the crash. So, what's it like from a multidisciplinary team? You mentioned there we've had a hand therapist, uh, psychologist for the big drivers, or the you know, um, or the main teams and things. Is there is there a really big team that you're a part of that? And I guess how does that sort of function week to week? Do you link up, or is it just a, sort of of the as needed basis? Yeah, more of an as needed basis compared to let's say an AFL club where you're all in house together. Uh, and it would vary driver to driver, definitely. Um, with Oscar, we have uh, myself, sort of physio. Uh, he works with a, a sports psych um, based out of Melbourne. Uh, we have uh, doctor's input. They're probably the three main, let's say, performance staff. We then also work with nutritionists as well, again, sort of um, to set a plan for the year. But it's not sort of weekly face-to-face -face meetings and planning for this week and that sort of stuff that you might have within a team environment. Ultimately, like who's who really runs the program, if that's a question to you in the sense like, you know, you could be like, we need to be doing this, but if the athlete doesn't want to do it, you probably won't be doing it. So, yeah, who, who really runs that and who guides it and who's the, I guess, the the real leader of the, the program? Yeah, yeah. Um, really good question. And I hadn't worked with individual athletes previously prior to working in F1 so much. I'd always been involved in team sports. Um, it's a bloody good question. So uh, I'll give you just a quick example. Um, Roman was uh, two years older than me and effectively he was paying me. Um, and he'd been involved in motorsport for longer than me. So for me to come in and start saying, um, you know, you need to do this, this, this was quite difficult um, because he effectively had more authority or more power than me. And he was sort of my boss, you know yeah. what I mean? So yeah, it's, it's difficult. But I think that you have to develop a relationship which is, you know, um, where there's mutual respect and where you can suggest things. If they want to take it on, it's ultimately up to them. Um, and most of the time they're very receptive. You know, once they realise that you're on board with them and you've got their best interests at heart, then they're, they're open ears. Sometimes you'll have discussions and they decide they don't want to do it. That's fine. Put it in the back of your mind and it's something that you can revisit later. Um, Oscar's 20, he's younger than me. Um, he hasn't been in Formula One. 
so I've got good expertise that I can portray to him and he's very receptive of that. So, yeah, sort of two different athletes and you just have to manage them two separate ways. Yeah. How are some of the other athletes you think, like, no, didn't mention names, but I'm sure you obviously um, have a relationship with different guys in similar roles to you and different drivers. Like, I'd imagine there's some big names floating around. It'd be interesting. <laughs> it, it varies. It varies. Uh, there's a lot of different nationalities in in formula one so therefore culturally things vary um a russian driver might be different to a british driver who might be different to a mexican driver in terms of their cultural beliefs there's there's some egos involved uh there's different cultures involved and yeah i think you just have to manage those as yeah as you can everything you've just sort of uh mentioned there around both egos and different cultural cultural components um and when it comes to our team so maybe this is probably more relevant to when you're working with team has you've got I believe a pretty large team of the pit crew and everyone else. And, um, you know, what happens in there around working in a large crew, both pit politics and things like that. And what are some issues that might arise? And also then what's your role in your previous role, uh, to working with all those guys? Cause you know, guys who change the tires, I believe that's pretty heavy. What are they? 20, 30 kilos per tire. And they're putting that on, uh, you know, so many hundred times a week. Um, fill us in on, some aspects around that and, and how that fits with your, your scope. Yeah, it's an interesting experience because uh, you're traveling, yeah, the, the minimum amount of people you're traveling with is 60, uh, 60 people in a team. Yeah, it can be up to 100 people in the bigger teams like Mercedes and these sorts of things. But if we just say that at Haas, we were traveling constantly with 60 people. You're traveling with these same 60 people living out of suitcases for 25 weeks of the year. So it's a lot of time to be spending with people. Um, you know, people are tired, they're working long hours. So yes, at some stages, there's, you know, a few spot fires that need to be managed. Um, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know how I necessarily went about it. I feel comfortable working in teams like that. So, you know, it just sort of came naturally to me, I guess. It's not something that I necessarily consciously thought about. Um, but yeah, of course, you know, you, you, you're dealing with conflict management. Um, you're dealing with motivating people. You're dealing with setting um, sort of objective achievable goals to give people context to their job and, and you know what we're trying to achieve um, which I just think helps give them a picture for the season otherwise you can just get lost in you know this week we're in Mexico next week we're in Brazil the next week we're in um, you know Austin and it always gets sort of lost somewhere so yeah yeah would you have much involvement with the rest of the pit crew from a physio performance point of view in that past role and, and what's that sort of look like? Yeah, so physio-wise, yes, I was doing, we were doing physio treatment for them, which is, you know, they're working 10 to 16-hour days, um, either bending over a car or banging under a car or lifting heavy objects. Um, so, yeah, managing any injuries that they present with effectively. One of the other um, sort of key roles that I had was um, working on their pit stop performance which might sound a little bit strange, but a pit stop typically takes between two to three seconds where the car comes into the pits, they have to change four tyres uh, at least once a race and then they they start racing again. So the the idea being that if we can make that closer to two seconds as, a clo- as opposed to closer than three seconds, well, there's a second gained and we're always looking to gain time or save time in, in Formula One. So, yeah, part of my role was to, um, to sort of implement a performance program to, to make that, you know, basically perform a needs analysis on what's required in a pit stop and then implement things to make that faster, which we did quite successfully at Haas during the years that I was there, um, which was which was good. Yeah. 
from where you're at in a career perspective at the moment, like is it um it sounds like it's a it's no doubt a demanding job and anything in the F one, but also, you know, things like tennis as well that involves so much travel, they're demanding on on our life. Yeah, where do you see yourself going with it in the future? Is it something you can do really long term? Yeah, it is it is demanding. It's is I've been living away from Australia now for six years. Um, I have ambitions of moving back to Australia. So, yeah, there's definitely an expiration date on, on being able to travel 25 weeks a year. <laughs> yeah, you know, you, you, miss, you, make a lot of, you, you make a lot of sacrifices, which is fine while you're young, but you know, as you get older and want to have a family and these things, you, know, you need to be realistic about how much you can travel. So um, this project that I'm working on with Oscar at the moment will be another few years yet. I'm, I'm really enjoying working with him. Um, He's going to be a bloody good driver and he's going to be successful in F1. So I want to stay the course as long as I can. Um, I hope to spend more time in Australia over the next few years for sure. Um, how that looks at the moment, I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but yeah, wheels are in motion. There's no doubt your journey to where you are is unique from a physio standpoint. Obviously, you went to uni here at Melbourne Uni and you know honed your, your tennis game, which I hear is of high quality. And... <laughs> Uh, and you've ended up working in F1, which is really phenomenal. I'm sure there's physios and performance coaches out there that would that would be their their dream. So, for those people, you know, how do they end up doing what you're doing or something like it? Uh, first things first, uh, you have to be living in Europe. I think, yeah. So I I never meant to fall into Formula One. I, I, always, I always enjoyed the sport, but it wasn't necessarily my goal when I was chasing that. I was very lucky that I fell into it. I've ended up having a, a good career in it and I'm, I'm good at what I do in Formula One. But um, if you want to, if, if that's your goal, you have to be living in Europe. And it's very easy for an Australian to go and live in the UK. So naturally, that's where I'd recommend that you live. Uh, and then there's some companies there that, you know, have very good relationships. So uh, an example is Hinsa Performance is a company um, sort of in Europe who have a lot of um, involvement in motorsport. Uh, so you may be able to go and start working with a Formula 2 or a Formula 3 driver and then sort of progress to Formula 1. So that would be my recommendation. It's very hard to work in Formula 1 from Australia. Um, so if you wanted to, to get involved, then you'd have to make the move across, yeah, which a lot of people do. You know, I moved over to the UK um, like most Australians do at some stage in their life just to go and sort of travel through Europe and, and you know, experience something different. Moving forward, you're going to be looking after hopefully what will be Australia's number one driver and um, we've got the F1 coming up and Daniel Ricciardo is the other Australian driver. So, you know, stepping away from physio stuff now a little bit and just final question just around F1. Hopefully this podcast comes out before the Melbourne Grand Prix. Um, but what can we maybe expect? Melbourne Grand Prix, Ricardo, and uh, well, things. Unfortunately for Danny Rick, and I'm not sure who'd like me saying this, but I, not much, not much in the Melbourne Grand Prix. Um, his team, there's been some new regulations this year. All the cars are new, so they're very different to the last five years, and they are struggling for pace. So where I said earlier that the equipment is normally the limiting factor, unfortunately for, for Danny Rick this year, his car is just slow. So no matter how well he drives, he may struggle. It does look like it might be exciting up the top, though, um, with like Charles Leclerc and Max Verstappen, who won the championship last year. They've been very competitive the first two races. So I think it's going to be exciting. And the last thing I will say on that is all the drivers do love the Melbourne Grand Prix because it's just such a good sporting city and it's a bloody good atmosphere down at Albert Park. So they all enjoy coming here. Yeah. Okay. 
And actually, a lot will be going to Urban Surf next door, mate. So you might be able to duck in there for a surf and see them. Say good day to a couple of drivers. <laughs> yeah. uh, lovely. Oh, well, Kim, uh, really appreciate you coming in, mate. Um, really informative chat, something totally different to what we've talked about before on this podcast or in any of our Sportsmap events and things. So it's been an absolute pleasure. So thank you. Mate, thank you for having me. Champion. Cheers. All the best.